Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases with an occasional glimpse at horror movies. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is part 2 of the season 4 special. I hope you've all had a chance to check out part 1 already. If not, please go back and listen to that first as it provides a lot of the background information and sets up part 2 rather nicely. The reason for having two parts is that there's a ridiculous amount of information to get through and one episode it simply wouldn't have done the case justice. Quite frankly, two episodes for this case is barely going to scratch the surface. I know that some people aren't keen on two-part episodes, but seeing as it is an end of season special, I'm sure you'll forgive me. This two-part series focuses on the life and crimes of one of Britain's most evil and notorious serial killers. In the first episode, I discussed the early life and crimes of Levi Belfield, aka the bus stop killer, and this week I'll be discussing the tragic events that led to Levi becoming infamous in the UK. I don't often give content warnings on my show, but this story certainly warrants one. This case contains graphic details of domestic violence, drug use, paedophilia, abduction, rape and murder that some listeners may find highly upsetting and disturbing. You've been warned. As always, before we begin, let's break the ice with this. Welcome to Daddy Facts. That was the jingle for Daddy Facts, the opening icebreaker segment that involves me reading a random dad fact from a pack of cards my daughter got me a few years ago. They look like that for the camera on YouTube. It's facts that every dad should know, and I don't know any of them, to be honest. They don't really help us either. But here is this week's fact. Let's break the ice a little bit before we get morbid. To help clear a slow-draining sink, pour eight tablespoons of baking soda down the drain, followed by eight tablespoons of white vinegar. Finish by pouring a whole kettle of boiling water down the drain. I should do that. Because I reckon the old sinky poo downstairs needs a bit of a bit of a clear out, a bit of a laxative. So it's basically equal parts baking soda to white vinegar. Doesn't probably have to be eight tablespoons. But then again, it's a whole kettle of water. Two kettles for sixteen. I'm talking shit now. Let's just. Throw <laughs> I've got a pile of these on the floor because I just twang them away afterwards. But. Let's just move on swiftly. I hope we broke the ice a little bit. Give us a bit of a giggle before we start crying. Now, usually at this point, the show's formula would go into some history about where the story's events took place. As with last week, I'm going to give that section of the show a miss as there's just too much to get through, as I've already said. And as with all cases covered in season four, including the special, this one was suggested by a listener of the show. Sarah Yates reached out to me via email at britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com and asked me to cover this case. Please get in touch if you want me to cover a case and get a shout out for your efforts. Season 5 is already full and season 6 is now half full, so it's the time to send me a suggestion. Please do it now if you want it covering sooner rather than later. But without further ado, let's get into part 2 of this horrific story. 
The way I'll be doing it this week is by going through the three known murder cases whereby Levi Belfield was convicted of said murders. I'll throw in extra information here and there, sort of around the case and to do with other individuals involved, but the focus is mainly going to be on the victims this week, as opposed to Levi Belfield and their respective stories. Our story starts on Thursday, March 21st, 2002, a rather ordinary and mild British spring day. Amanda Dowler, better known as Millie to her friends and family, was attending Heathside School in Weybridge, Surrey, as she did each weekday during term time. She'll have been in what we Brits call year nine, but what my US listeners would know as eighth grade. So she was 13 years old, between 13 and 14, whatever you call that year in school. After finishing school that day, Millie did what she always did. She made her way to the town's local railway station and hopped aboard a train heading home. On that particular day though, Millie got off the train at Walton-on-Thames station. That was one stop before her usual final destination, which was Hersham. She decided to meet some friends at Walton-on-Thames station's cafe, hence the slight detour. She fancied getting some chips with her friends, as we all did back then. Sometimes I do that now. Millie did the responsible thing though and called her dad Bob to let him know that she'd be home in around half an hour. That call was made at 3.47pm and the girls left the cafe around 20 minutes later. Millie Dowler never made it back home. Anyone that has a daughter that's listening, especially teenage daughters, it's about to get tough guys. The last confirmed sighting of the 13 year old was by a 15-year-old named Catherine Lanes. This was a friend of Millie's 16-year-old sister, Gemma. Catherine was waiting for a bus on Station Avenue and remembered making eye contact with Millie as she walked past on her way home. She was alone. Catherine watched Millie from the other side of the road as she made her way towards a car park before disappearing out of view. The bus arrived shortly after that and Catherine, who was the only person on the bus, looked out for Millie as she expected to see her continuing her journey on Station Avenue. Millie was nowhere to be seen. Later that evening, an extremely worried Sally and Bob Dowler reported their daughter as missing to the police at around 7pm. The family later pleaded for the public to come forward with any information that may help locate young Millie. British TV show Crime Watch launched an appeal on March 28, 2002 with a reconstruction of the events that happened on that fateful March day a week earlier. CCTV images were also released showing Millie leaving school that afternoon. She appeared to have vanished into thin air. Nobody knew what had happened to her. In April 2002, Millie's family were informed that a body had been recovered from the River Thames and was yet to be identified with the body being found only a couple of miles away from their Walton-on-Thames home, Sally and Bob expected the worst. It didn't take long for forensic scientists to realise that the female body found in the river was not that of Millie Dowler. It was in fact the body of 73-year-old Maisie Thomas, who had gone missing a year earlier in March 2001. Superintendent Alan Sharp of Surrey Police then said, we are still treating Amanda as a missing person and will continue to do so until we have evidence to suggest otherwise. We are not treating this as a murder investigation, but in resourcing terms, we have more officers working on the Millie case than most forces would deploy on a murder investigation. 
Throughout this investigation, we have been painstakingly thorough. You kind of get the sense of how big this was at the time. The discovery of Maisie Thomas's body wasn't the first false alarm for the Dowler family. The body of a man was discovered on the railway line near Hersham Station only a few days after Millie disappeared. A couple of youths then reported what they thought was a body floating in the river, but it turned out to just be a jacket. In May 2002, British tabloid newspaper The Sun offered a £100,000 reward for any information that resulted in Millie Dowler being found. Nobody came forward. By June 2002, Millie's parents were told to expect the worst by Surrey police. Not once to give up, Sally and Bob continued to message Millie's phone as her 14th birthday was approaching on June 25, 2002. It came and went. The hope that Millie had simply run away from home was desperately being hung on to. The Dowler family's hopes were finally crushed on Wednesday, September 18th, 2002, almost six months to the day after Millie was last seen. A set of human remains were found in Yately Heath Woods in Hampshire by a couple of locals who had gone mushroom picking. The remains were completely devoid of clothing and there were no personal belongings in sight either. After being open to the elements for such a long time, the only way the remains could be identified was by searching the dental records. The body was then confirmed to be that of the missing 13-year-old schoolgirl, Millie Dowler. You'll notice I've not really mentioned our villain Levi Belfield yet at this point. Don't worry, we will get there. The story is a complex one, and it's quite hard to get to grips with. It's been a bit of a difficult writing session for me to be fair but it will tie up in the end i've probably missed loads out so if you're an expert on the case don't give us any hard graft because it's well complex and i only do short episodes the next person i'm going to talk about is 19 year old marsha mcdonnell marsha was a student at richmond upon thames college and in early 2003 she was on a gap year also known as a sabbatical year the talented violinist who lived with her parents in priory road hampton went on a night out with some friends on Monday, February 3rd, 2003. As she got on the number 111 bus, or 111, not sure how you say it, from the centre of Kingston-upon-Thames shortly after midnight, Marsha got off the bus on Percy Road and made her way home up Priory Road. She was barely a minute away from her front door when she was suddenly ambushed from behind by an unknown assailant. Marsha was struck on the back of the head several times before her attacker ran away, just leaving her there for dead. One of Marsha's neighbours heard a scream followed by a series of groans which led them to having a little look outside. An ambulance was soon called and Marsha spent the next couple of days in the hospital. Unfortunately, Marsha died two days later as a direct result of her head injuries. A post-mortem confirmed that Marsha had multiple skull fractures and had bleeding around her brain. Strangely, all of Marsha's possessions remained on her person when the ambulance arrived at the scene. This wasn't a robbery attempt gone wrong. It was a completely unprovoked attack on an innocent teenage girl with the sole intent being to murder her. How frightening is that? Another woman was then attacked from behind whilst waiting at a bus stop in Longford Village on December 16, 2003. 34-year-old Albanian hairdresser Irma Dragoshi was left with a huge lump on her head and regular headaches after the unprovoked attack, but luckily she escaped with her life. 
Before I discuss the third known murder victim of Levi Belfield, I must introduce you to yet another young lady by the name of Kate Sheedy. The young 18-year-old with long blonde hair was a student at Gumley House. You may remember I mentioned the Catholic school in part one of this special. Levi Belfield was obsessed with Gumley House. He didn't actually know Kate Sheedy, but he regularly would walk past and try to talk to the pupils there. It was an all-girls school. On Thursday, May 27, 2004, a full 15 months after the murder of Marsha McDonnell, Kate Sheedy was out with her friends celebrating the last day of school before their A-level exams. Later that evening, Gumley House's head girl and her friends were having a few cheeky beverages in the Hobgoblin pub. The get-together ended around midnight and each of the girls made their own way home. Kate's bus, the H22, arrived last and it was around 20 past midnight when it rocked up. As she arrived at her destination, Kate disembarked the bus and started walking up Wharton Road. In the distance, she noticed an idling car, which she thought was strange, so naturally she decided to cross the road to try and avoid it. Moments later, the idling car, which was a white people carrier with blacked out windows, it swiftly did a U-turn and started driving directly towards Kate Sheedy. Kate was knocked down by the car and, alarmingly, the car then reversed back over her body before swiftly driving away. Kate somehow managed to crawl to a handbag which had been knocked out of her hand in the attack and dialed 999 on her mobile at 39 minutes past midnight. She was taken to West Middlesex Hospital and treated for her injuries. Their injuries were a collapsed lung and a broken collarbone, but she did make a full recovery although she was left with chronic back pain and a lump where her now misaligned collarbone sort of protrudes almost near her shoulder there. Almost three months after the attempted murder of Kate Sheedy, another young woman was the victim of a hit-and-run attack from behind. The person in question this time is the final murder victim in this story. Her name was Amélie Delagrange, a 22-year-old French national who had recently returned to live in London after spending some time in her home nation. It's Thursday, August 19th, 2004, and Amelie is out drinking with her friends in London Road, Twickenham. It wasn't a night for getting completely sloshed, so after a few wines, Amelie decided to make her way home. She caught the R627 bus home at 9.39pm, and she got off a stop or two later than anticipated. It's not clear why, but it's likely the wine may have had something to do with it. She might have drifted off briefly. I mean, one time I was on a train home from Leeds to Huddersfield to meet my mate. Continue drinking around Huddersfield. You going to come out, Steve? Yes, mate, I'll come out just to meet you. Perfect, see you in 20. I fell asleep. <laughs> I ended up in Manchester. And uh, I had to ring him and say, sorry, mate, I've missed my stop. We're not going out tonight. <sighs> We're still friends, barely. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Emily had to get off at the last stop of the bus route and walk back from when she'd came. She was picked up on CCTV cameras walking past Fullwell Bus Garage on Hampton Road moments after exiting the bus as she made her way towards Twickenham Green, that was where she lived, just on the other side. Amelie started walking across the green shortly after 10pm that evening, 
but sadly she never made it to the other side. She was struck from behind by an unknown assailant and hit on the head several times with a blunt object. A familiar MO, right? A student named Tristan Beasley Suffolk spotted Amelie lying face down in the middle of the green around 10.15pm and he promptly called an ambulance. Despite being rushed to the hospital at around 10.30pm, Amelie was pronounced dead at two minutes past midnight the following morning. Unlike Marsha McDonnell, however, Amelie's phone and handbag had been stolen, which led to the police initially thinking this was a mugging that had gone terribly wrong. All the aforementioned attacks would later be pinned on a West London bouncer by the name of Levi Belfield, who was arrested on November 22nd, 2004, after being suspected as being the one responsible for murdering Amélie Delagrange. Detective Chief Inspector Colin Sutton was in charge of the murder investigation, codenamed Operation Yedis, and confirmed the following. It was forensic evidence. We didn't have any DNA or the stuff that makes television shows like CSI. We just had masses of CCTV images of Amelie walking up Hampton Road from the bus stop and pictures of this small white van that always seemed to be there. Despite the white Ford Courier van's number plate not being identified, the officers were sent to local road bridges to look out for similar vans. Over a hundred anonymous tips were also sifted through in an attempt to narrow down their suspect list. On that list was the name Levi Belfield. After deciding to conduct surveillance on Levi for a number of days, Colin Sutton and his officers were confident he was their man. Colin had also linked the murder of Amelie Delagrange with that of Marsha McDonnell due to the similarities of both attacks. You'll remember from part one that Levi had so many different cars and this is how he found people. This is how he stalked people. He would drive up looking for buses on evenings. He would see if there was a lone female on the back of the bus. He would follow the bus, wait till they got off, all caught on CCTV, all these different cars that he had, often not even registered in his name. And then he would follow them off the bus, attack them from behind, and then he was gone. In the early hours of that November morning in 2004, Colin Sutton took no chances. He organised seven teams of officers to visit seven of Levi's known properties with the intention of all bursting in at exactly the same time. None of the house searches led to the discovery of Levi Belfield though. At least initially, anyway. Strange old story this. Drawing a complete blank, Colin Sutton was surprised when Emma Mills confessed to one of his officers that Levi was at the house. Colin had gone to Little Benty with his team. Emma said, he's hiding in the attic. And they thought, well, how's he done that? But what he'd done was he'd got this really quick route. As soon as he heard the door go, bang, he's nipped up into the attic, pulled the door back up. You know, he's jumped on a wardrobe and gone up into the attic. And they found him in the attic and he was hiding behind a layer of fiberglass insulation. Itchy as hell afterwards. The not-so-talented escape artist was immediately arrested and taken into custody. Levi Belfield's first major trial started in October 2007, after also being charged with the murder of Marsha McDonnell on May 25, 2006. The charges placed against him were as follows. Two counts of murder for Marsha McDonnell and Amelie Delagrange. Two counts of attempted murder 
for Irma Dragoshi and Kate Sheedy, two counts of assault containing actual bodily harm, Irma Dragoshi and Kate Sheedy again, and one count of kidnap. That was that of Anna Maria Rennie, who I discussed in part one. I did call her Anna Marie in part one, so apologies for that. It's actually Anna Maria Rennie. Unsurprisingly, Levi Belfield denied every single one of the charges put to him. Prosecuting barrister Brian Altman, QC, called several witnesses who all gave evidence against Levi Belfield. Key witnesses included Irma Dragoshi, as well as Sunil Garu, who was in the car with Levi when he got out and attacked Irma. He turned to Sunil and said, Here, watch this. And then he went and attacked Irma from behind. Absolute psycho. On February 25th, 2008, Levi Belfield was handed a whole life order by Judge Mrs. Justice Rafferty, meaning he will never be eligible for parole and will spend the rest of his life behind bars. Judge Rafferty said in a closing statement, You have reduced three families to unimagined grief. What dreadful feelings went through your head as you attacked and in two cases snuffed out a young life is beyond understanding. Aggravating features are the chronicle of violence directed towards lone, vulnerable young women during the hours of darkness and substantial premeditation and planning. Shortly after his sentencing, Levi was being treated as the prime suspect in the Millie Dowler murder case, along with a series of other random attacks on lone women in London, which included that of his so-called ex-girlfriend Patsy Morris in 1980. That's what we discussed in part one. Levi was formally charged with the murder of Millie Dowler on March 20th, 2010, with the trial commencing at the Old Bailey on May 6, 2011. He was charged with the attempted kidnap of 11-year-old Rachel Cowles on March 10th, 2002, as well as the kidnap and murder of Millie Dowler on March 21st, 2002. The trial lasted just short of seven weeks, with the jury returning with their verdicts at 2.30pm on June 23rd, 2011. With regards to the kidnap and murder of Millie Dowler, the jury found Levi Belfield guilty. As for the attempted kidnap charge of Rachel Cowles, the jury wasn't so sure. The following day, June 24th, 2011, saw Levi's counsel apply to Judge Mr Justice Wilkie in an attempt to discharge the jury from giving a verdict in respect of the attempted kidnapping of Rachel Cowles. Their grounds were that there had been an avalanche of publicity adverse to the defendant, which contained material that had not been before the jury. After hearing submissions from the Crown, the judge ultimately discharged the jury on the basis they could not conceivably have avoided the material. Levi was once again handed a whole life order, making him the first person in the UK to receive two. Judge Wilkie said in his closing statement, Belfield is a cruel and pitiless killer, who treated Millie in death with total disrespect. His victim suffered what must have been a terrifying ordeal for no reason other than she was in the wrong place at the wrong time and became a target of the unreasoning hatred which was driving him. Millie's memory will long be cherished after Levi Belfield's name is forgotten, but what is the most cruel of all was that in an attempt to divert responsibility from himself, he instructed his lawyers in his trial to expose the world to her most adolescent thoughts secrets and worries, and sought to hint that she was a dark, unhappy and troubled person. Despite all the evidence and his conviction, Levi Belfield would not admit to having any involvement in Millie's death. That was until February 2016. 
Whilst being questioned by Surrey police as to whether he had an accomplice, Levi admitted abducting, raping and killing Millie Dowler for the first time. He would later deny having said anything of the sort, but Surrey police stood by their statement. One further controversial aspect of this whole case was British tabloid newspaper News of the World's phone hacking scandal. It was revealed in July 2011 that personal information about Millie Dowler's family had been acquired by private investigator Glenn Mulcair after her disappearance. Millie's voicemail had been hacked on instructions from some News of the World journalists. Allegedly, some of Millie's voicemail messages were deleted, which gave her family false hope because they thought they'd been deleted by Millie. Therefore, they thought she might still be alive. It's thought that the deleted voicemails may have contained valuable evidence about her abduction and potentially led to the capture of her killer far sooner. As I bring this tragic story to an end, I want to briefly mention the charity set up by Sally and Bob Dowler in memory of their daughter Millie. Millie's Fund was created in October 2002 and aims to promote the safety of young people. The work of Millie's Fund is now being carried out by the Susie Lamplow Trust, which was founded by Diana and Paul Lamplow following the disappearance of their daughter Susie in 1986. And that concludes the story of bus stop killer Levi Belfield, along with that of his known victims Amanda Millie Dowler, Marsha McDonnell, Amelie Delagrange, Irma Dragoshi. Kate Sheedy and Anna Maria Rennie. Thanks again to Sarah Yates for suggesting this case. I hope you all enjoyed this two-parter. I mainly cover lesser-known cases during my seasons now, so I do like to mix it up with my specials by covering someone more notorious. Special thanks again also goes to Jeffrey Wansell, author of The Bus Stop Killer, Millie Dowler, Her Murder and the Full Story of the Sadistic Serial Killer Levi Belfield, which was released in 2011. A lot of the details told in both parts of this special have come directly from Jeffrey's dedicated research into the case and I'd like to encourage everyone to give that book a read if you do want to learn more about it. I've added a link to the book in the episode description if you're interested in giving it a read. Now that season 4 is officially over, let me give you an idea of what you can expect from my off-season. Next week is going to be a super special episode and I honestly can't wait for you to hear it. I welcome paranormal investigator Christy Sumner to the show to discuss three notorious American murder cases. But not only that, Christy discusses with me her experiences inside the actual murder houses relating to those crimes. Along with her team, Soul Sisters Paranormal, Christy has undertaken paranormal investigations at each of those murder houses and her findings were absolutely chilling. You do not want to miss that episode, trust me. I recently appeared on Once Upon a Nightmare with my friend Lorraine Purden to discuss the horror comedy film Scary Movie from 2000. I'm currently editing the video for that and what I'm going to do is I'm going to release this after the Paranormal Investigator episode just because Lorraine did the audio side, not everyone will have heard it and it was a really fun episode, we did a lot of laughing in that one and I want you guys to see the video so I'm going to release that the week after next week, so two weeks from today if I get my calendar maths right. The week after that, I'm hoping to welcome back Bobby Holmes to the show for Killer British Murder Stories Volume 4. No idea what story Bobby will be covering. I think I'm going to cover the case of Penelope Jackson, which is very recent in the UK, but I've no idea what story Bobby's going to tell me. 
I've got one new review to read out this week. Thank you, Min5Years, for leaving British Murders a five-star rating and review on iTunes. They said, I love the show, and now waiting for more, as it's so good. Thank you. Thank you, Min5Years. And suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode. If you want to leave a written review, you can do that on iTunes, on Podchaser, or Facebook. And now, brand new feature on Spotify, a lot of my listeners use Spotify. You can leave ratings on there now. Out of five star, I don't think you can leave a written one, but you can leave a, a rating on there. So please, please, please get those ratings coming in. All reviews and ratings help increase the show's exposure, brings it to a new audience, and they're, most importantly, greatly appreciated. If you want to support the show, you can do that each month by joining my Patreon. That's patreon.com slash britishmurders. You'll get early access to ad-free episodes and access to my scripts if you're interested in that kind of stuff. Or if you want to support me on a one-off basis, you can do that by visiting buymeacoffee.com slash britishmurders. And if you want some merchandise, that's available to purchase at Teespring. The link for that is a little bit longer to say, so just go to the link in the description of this episode. And if you want more on British Murders even more on British Murders. Please check out all my social media channels. The videos from my episodes are on YouTube. Let's get those subscriber numbers up. And please continue to email your case suggestions to me. It's British Murders... British? Who do I think I am? British Murders Podcast at gmail.com or just send me a message on social media. You'll get the episode covered and you'll get a shout out. That is it for now. I want to wish everyone a very merry or happy Christmas, however you want to say it. Or if you're not celebrating the holiday, have a great weekend, guys. I've got my ho-ho-homer Christmas jumper on. When this comes out, it's Christmas in two days. Let's enjoy it. Let's enjoy the time off. I'll see you next week, just before the end of this year, and look to welcome you into the new year with a paranormal episode. But that's it for now, as I say. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, cheerio!